0: Okay, so today, folks, today we're going to be looking again at Romans 9, working our way through this chapter. We're basically coming to the end of one section. Even though Romans 9 ends with verses 30 to 33, if you if you study it, really they, those verses belong to chapter 10. At the end of chapter, uh, verse 29, Paul finishes his subject of the sovereignty of God. And then in verse 30 of chapter 9 through chapter 10, we talk about the responsibility of man, kind of the flip side of what we've already been studying. And then in chapter 11, it gets into God's plan for Israel. So that's where we're going. Today we're going to finish up this subject of of God's sovereignty. I decided to call it uh, God's way of forming the true Israel. That's what we're going to call this. So let's ask His help and get into our text today. Lord, please give us humble hearts to hear what You say here and to be molded by Your words, to be formed by them, and to have the appropriate response to the things that are so glorious that we see. Affect our hearts, Lord, that we can feel. In our hearts, we can feel the wonder of what You're telling us in this passage. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Romans 9. Let's pick it up in verse 24. Well, you know, I really can't. We have to go to 23 because that starts the sentence. So Romans nine twenty-three. It says, And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. Now we need to get the flow of chapter 9 to understand this last paragraph. So as we go back and look through chapter 9 to what Paul has told us, we discover that he has a particular group of people in mind throughout the chapter. In verse 6, they're called Israel. He says in verse 6, they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. So the Israel Paul's talking about here is not Israel after the flesh. It's not the physical descendants of Abraham. It's the true Israel, the true people of God. They're also called in verse 8, the children of God and the children of promise. And in verse 23, they're called vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. All of these expressions are describing the same group of people. The true Israel, children of God, children of the promise, vessels of mercy. And these are the people to whom the promises of God have been promised. It's the true Israel to whom these promises of salvation have come. It's not every physical descendant of Abraham that has the promise of salvation, but the ones that God has included within this true Israel. They are the ones who receive this promise. So, in order to understand his flow of thought, we need to see what Paul has already told us in this chapter. And he's told us a little bit about this group of people, this true Israel. He's told us in verses 6 to 13, that God chose Isaac and passed over Ishmael and Abraham's other sons. God chose Jacob and passed over Esau. Why did God choose Isaac and pass over um, over Ishmael? Well how did he do that? How did he how did he take Isaac and form him into this true Israel? Well the, the fact is he had to actually do a miracle for Isaac to be part of this covenant line through whom the Messiah would come because his parents were unable to have children so God had to miraculously bring forth a supernatural birth how did God bring Jacob into this this promised line this true Israel of God well according to verse 11 he did it through uh, it was not through anything that he had done good or bad it was done through God's purpose God's choice God's call, in verse 13, through God's love. It was the initiative of God that brought Jacob into this covenant line and made him part of the true Israel of God. And then as we keep on reading further, in verse 15, God says that, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Well, what doesn't depend on the man who wills? Well, what he had just said in verse 15, having mercy. God has mercy on whom we will have mercy. That doesn't depend on the man who wills or the man who runs. Willing refers to choices. Running refers to actions. He's saying being given the mercy of God does not depend on the man's choices or actions. It depends on God alone. It depends on the freedom of God to bestow this blessing through grace on the... On his people and bring them into this true Israel and form this community <clears throat> he continues in verse 18 so then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires he has mercy on whom he desires he he likens God to a potter in verse 20 who is forming pots out of clay and he says the thing molded doesn't say to the one molding it why are you doing this why are you making me like this The thing molded doesn't have a right to talk back to or answer back to the potter. But rather the potter has a right over the clay to make whatever kind of vessel he chooses to make. And we covered all that uh, two Sundays ago. And then he says in verse 22 and 23 that God uh, has formed from every human being various vessels. There's two types, vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. That's what we find in 21. But then he changes the analogy in verse 22 and 23. And he says these are either vessels of wrath or vessels of mercy. Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. And that brings us to verse 24 when he tells us who these vessels of mercy are. That he's prepared beforehand for glory. Even us. Whom he also called Not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. So, who is the true Israel? It's these vessels of mercy, which God prepared beforehand for glory. They're the ones that God called, not just from among Jews, but also from among Gentiles. That's the true Israel that God is forming. The kingdom of God, the church of God, the community of God, the people of God. The true people of God. Now, you'll notice... Verses 6 to 13, Paul is moving in a direction with his his argument and his teaching. He interrupts himself in verses 14 to 24 to answer two objections. The first objection is, is God unjust to choose some and not choose others? That's verses 14 to 18. Then the second objection is, is God unjust to... Uh, Condemn those that he hardens That's verses 19 to 24 but having answered those two objections that people are going to have to his teaching he gets right back on track where he left off in verses 6 to 13 and he continues now talking about the sovereignty of God notice in verses 6 to 13 he illustrates the sovereignty of God through the patriarchs Isaac Jacob the patriarchs of Israel And he shows the principle that God is sovereign in selecting through whom the covenant will be brought to pass and the Messiah will come. Now he switches gears. He's not going to talk about the patriarchs anymore. He's going to talk about the prophets. And he's going to prove from the writings of the prophets the very same thing he's been teaching in verses 6 to 13 that God is sovereign. So he quotes two of the prophets here. First Hosea and then Isaiah. In the writings of Hosea and Isaiah, he's going to teach us two things about how God forms the true Israel. Number one, the calling of the Gentiles. That's in verses 25 and 26 from the writings of Hosea. And then he's going to teach us about how God preserved a Jewish remnant. And that comes in Isaiah's writings, which Paul quotes in uh, verse 27, 28, and 29. So the point that he's making here is that to be a vessel of mercy, a child of God, a child of promise, part of the true Israel, requires God's call. That's what he tells us in verse 24. Vessels of mercy were called from among, not just from among Jews, but also from among Gentiles into this new community of God. So what is the call of God? Let me try to define that for you. This is the way I would define God's call. We're not talking about a general gospel call. We're talking about an inward special call of God. That call is the all-powerful operation of the Holy Spirit whereby he shows a person the ugliness of his sin and the beauty of Jesus Christ so that they embrace Jesus Christ as Lord, Savior, and Treasure. That's how I would define the call. It's an inward call. Not, a, not just an outward call that hits the ear, but an inward call that affects and transforms the heart. And it's an effective call. It overcomes the natural resistance that all of us have to f- laying down our sin and following Jesus Christ. So let's take a look at these two points that Paul brings up here of those people that are called. First of all, the calling of the Gentiles, and then the preserving a, of a Jewish remnant. So verse 25 and 26 As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they should be called sons of the living God. Now, if we were to go back to Hosea chapter 2, verse 23, and Hosea 1, verse 10, these are the verses that Paul's quoting. And studied those verses in their context, you'd find out something really interesting. He's talking about Israel there, not Gentiles. But Paul applies those passages to the Gentiles of his own day. We know that because that's what he just got done saying in verse 24. Even us whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles, as he also says in Hosea. You see, he's quoting Hosea to prove that God is calling the Gentiles. But if we go back to Hosea, We're going to find out that he was really talking about, in those passages, he was talking about Israel. So, what had happened is that the Assyrians had come in and they had defeated the Israelites. They had wiped out thousands, killed thousands of the Israelites. They had put them in chains. They had dragged them away from their homeland into this other land and carried them away as captives. And at that point, God says, You're not my people, you're not beloved. I'm sending you away. God was so fed up with them because of their idolatry. Continual gross idolatry that eventually he allowed the Assyrians to come in do this work of judgment upon his own people and carry them away as slaves into a foreign country. So the principle Paul sees here is that God can take a people who are not his people and make them his people. He can take a people who are not beloved Because the relationship had been severed at this point, through to their gross idolatry. And he can make them again his beloved. He can restore them back to his covenant favor. And he says that's the principle, and he he applies that principle to the Gentiles who are being called out of darkness into light in Paul's own day. He says God is taking a people who are not a people today, these Gentiles, And he's making them his own people. They weren't beloved before. Now they are God's beloved. Now how does God refer to these Gentiles that he's calling. In Paul's own day. He calls them by three different titles. Verse 25 he calls them my people. Verse 25 he calls them beloved. And verse 26 he calls them sons of the living God. So let's think about those three titles for these Gentiles being called into God's true Israel. Remember the Gentiles had no claim upon God at all. They couldn't say that they were God's people but they never were. They weren't God's people. The Jews saw all of the Gentiles as vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. <laughs> From verse 23. A Jew would see every Gentile as one of those vessels of wrath. But the New Testament sees these called Gentiles as not the vessels of wrath, but as the very people of God. Like in Titus 2.14, where Paul says that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So these Gentiles who were called were a people for God's own possession. They were God's people. Now, there is a sense when you look out at all the peoples of the world, like even in Acts 17, uh, Paul, Paul says, aren't we all God's offspring? He was quoting a secular poet. And there is a sense in which you can say all people are God's people by virtue of creation. But not all people are God's people. Not all people are sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. There is a difference between being a created being of God and being a child of God, being created and being redeemed. And to be part of the people of God, you have to be redeemed. You have to be a true child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, think about the phrase, beloved. He says in verse 25. Once these people were not beloved, now they are called the beloved of God. That term beloved applies to God's covenant people. When they weren't God's covenant people, before they became Christians, they were not beloved. Now they are. There's been a radical difference that has taken place in God's relationship with them. We'll talk a lot more about that in a minute. And then the third one, sons of the living God. This would harken back to verse 8 when Paul says, that is, it's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. They are God's people, they are beloved, they are sons of the living God. And everywhere in the New Testament you find the phrase, a son of God or a child of God, it refers to a saved person. Like even in Romans 8 verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Or verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. When the Spirit comes to dwell in a person, he becomes a child of God, a son of God. Okay, so how do these three expressions apply to us today? That's what we really want to know, right? It's great to know that they applied to the Gentiles in Paul's day that were being called out of the world into the true Israel. But what about us? We're Gentiles. Are there any any ethnic Jews in our church? Anybody here who's an ethnic Jew? So we're all Gentiles, right? So, and we've been called out of the world, we've been called to Christ. How do these expressions apply to us? Well, let's think them through. My people. One of the great expressions in the Bible, or the great promises of the Bible, is when God says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And that's an expression that comes up a lot. It comes up 14 times in the Bible. The very first time is in the book of Genesis in chapter 17, when God is making a covenant with Abraham. And there, Genesis 17, 8, God says, I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. There's the very first promise. I will be their God. Going on from there. We come to Jeremiah 31. Where Jeremiah is talking about this new covenant. That God will make with the house of Israel. And with the house of Judah. After those days. And in verse 33. Just breaking into the midst of this description. Of the new covenant. He says. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel. After those days declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That promise is the heart of the new covenant. I will be their God. They shall be my people. If we were to go even further, we could go all the way to the last book of the Bible. We started in Genesis. We can go all the way to Revelation, the second last chapter of the Bible, chapter 21. And there in chapter 21, God is describing the new heavens and the new earth. And he talks about the glory of the city of the new Jerusalem, and how the God's going to wipe away every tear from their eyes. There's no longer going to be any death or mourning or crying or pain. And then he says in verse 7, He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. So, when we're brought into the new covenant, God becomes our God, we become his people, and there in the new heavens and the new earth forever, that will be the reality. We will be God's people. He will be our God. So what does that promise have to do with? What is it? Let's, let's, let's see if we can define the promise. I will be their God. They shall be my people. That promise provides satisfaction, number one. If it's true, that God will be our God, and we will be God's people, what else does a person really need? I mean, that just about covers everything. (laughs) If God is our God, that's different from God just being God, or the God, or even the true God. He is all of those things, but He is our God through faith in Jesus Christ. Do you remember how the psalmist says it in Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd. My shepherd. He's our God. There's a difference between him being creator God and him being my God. Through covenant. Through relationship. Remember what Paul says in Romans 8.31? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 21. So then let us not boast in men, for all things belong to you. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you. And you belong to Christ. And Christ belongs to God. So as a Christian, Paul says everything belongs to you. Well, how can that be? because we belong to God and all things belong to God we're in covenant with God so all things that are his now are shared with those that are in union with him and through faith in Jesus Christ you are in a vital union with God through Christ so think about it all that God is he shares with us his power his faithfulness is for you his love is for you his grace is for you his mercy is for you His wisdom is for you. His generosity is for you. His faithfulness. I don't remember if I even said that before. But anyway, all of the attributes of God are for you. That's what it means for God to be your God. He's for you. And all that He is, is for you. Not only does that promise provide satisfaction, but it also provides intimacy. Because that promise is like me saying, she is my wife and I am her husband. God shall be my God and I shall be his people. He's talking about an intimacy of relationship. Covenant marriage is called a covenant in the book of uh, Malachi chapter 2. Marriage is a covenant and when we come to know God and come into a saving relationship with God we enter into covenant with God an intimacy of relationship with the almighty creator And not only does this promise provide satisfaction and intimacy, but it provides protection. Because if I am his people, what can man do to me? What can Satan do to me? The psalmist says in um, Psalm 84, this is one of my favorite psalms. He says, the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. So if the Lord is a shield. And I am his child. I am his people. Then he is going to shield me from all those things that he knows are not good for me. Now it does say no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. So if I'm walking uprightly. He's going to allow through that shield all those good things. And he's going to hinder or stop all the things that he knows are not good for me. You see what I'm saying? So all the good things come through the shield and all the bad things are stopped. Now that doesn't mean you're not going to have pain or suffering. It, see we have to see it from God's vantage point looking down. He knows what is good even though for us it feels hard. It feels painful. Trials and troubles. We're not talking about the elimination of suffering because that will be there. But God knows what sufferings and trials we need on our path to glory. And he allows the right ones through the the force field. (laughs) And he stops the ones um, that he knows we should not face. So he protects us. Psalm 27.1 The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? So a true Christian should not be filled with fear. Is God your God? Are you one of His people? Well, then He is there to sovereignly rule over your life and to protect you from the things that He knows uh, would devastate you and then to allow into your life the things that He knows that are good and right and wise for your life. What about this phrase beloved? Back in Romans nine he says the Gentiles that are being called, uh, one, at one time they were not beloved, now they are called the beloved of God. Well, this is interesting because as a young Christian I was taught by my pastor and other people on the radio that God loves everyone exactly the same. But if that's true, I can't make sense out of verse 25. Because verse 25 says that God calls her who was not beloved, beloved. They weren't beloved, now they are, according to verse 25. Now, there's a really good book on this. Oh boy, now I'm not going to be able to think of the author. (laughs) I'll think about him later and I'll tell you. But he call, it's called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. Anybody know the author, Jerome? Okay, I'll remember it in a second. <laughs> this is bad for people who are going to listen on the radio because I should know the guy's name. He's a famous, famous expositor. He's written an awesome commentary on John. That's who the guy is. Anyways, um, it's, it's difficult because God's love is not just one dimensional, it's, it's full orbed in its dimensions. In other words, God does have a general love for all of His creatures because He created them. There is a general sense in which we can say, God loves all people. Uh, And Jesus said, God sends His rain on the just and the unjust. He causes His sun to rise on the just and the unjust. So God gives rain, He gives sunshine to all peoples of the world. In that sense, He's good and He shows His love to all of His creatures. And in John 3.16, it says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And I take that phrase world to refer to the world of mankind, not just the elect. I think he's talking about everybody in the world. Well, then how does God love everybody in the world? He sends his son to be a sufficient savior for all and he offers salvation and eternal life to everyone if they will just come and believe upon his son. So there's a sincere offer of God made to every person through the gospel call and that's an expression of God's love to them. The general love of God he, it's a love of pity a love of compassion a love of offer sincerity of offer but on the other hand there is another kind of love that we find in scripture that goes far beyond this kind of love. It's not creator love it's redeemer love. It's not just a love that offers salvation, it's a love that actually saves. And that's the kind of love we find in the New Testament epistles. And so what I would like to do is take you on a short survey through the New Testament to show you this kind of love. You might have never discovered it or seen it for yourself. Um, So let's do that. Let's let's go to the book of Ephesians to start off. Ephesians 2. Verse 1, Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too, Christians too, all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. But God... Being rich in mercy because of His, what? Great love. This is different from Creator love. Because of His great love with which He loved us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This great love is the saving love of God. It's a love that not just makes salvation possible or offers salvation to people throughout the world. It's a love that actually brings them into possession of salvation. Brings them into the covenant. It's the kind of love that by supernatural miracle causes Isaac to be born and made part of the covenant line. Or the kind of love that through God's purpose, choice, and call brings um, Jacob as part of that covenant line. go over to Ephesians 5 and look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Now, here, Paul is talking about the love of Jesus Christ for the church. And how does this love express itself? Well, number one, he gives himself up for her. He's talking about giving himself up in death, die for the church. But it doesn't end there, does it? He gives himself up for her so that he sanctifies her, cleanses her, and then presents that church to himself in glory. So this is not just an offer of salvation. This is the kind of love that saves, it sanctifies, it cleanses and it presents glorified that church to himself. Husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Okay, husbands love your wife. If I told my wife, honey I love you, I love you so much, in fact the wonderful thing about my love for you is that I love every other woman in the world exactly the same way I love you. Is that going to be a compliment? <laughs> I might get a frying pan over the head for that one. <laughs> Jesus has a special love for his bride. God has a special love for his people. We're talking about the special love, the great love, the saving love, the covenant love of God here. Um, okay, let's go to Colossians 3. D.A. Carson, yes. Who who found that one? Thank you, honey. Yeah. D.A. Carson, The the Doctrine of the Difficult Love of God. You guys should read that if you're at all interested in this subject. It's $5. Okay. Colossians 3.12. Paul says, So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on dot, dot, dot. All I want you to see is the three expressions that he begins the sentence with. These people that he's writing to are called chosen of God, holy, beloved. Now beloved by whom? Sometimes when you read through the New Testament epistles he's talking about beloved by him. But I don't believe that's what he's talking about here because he says chosen of God, holy, beloved. So if they're chosen of God I believe he's talking here; they're beloved by God. These ones that are beloved by God are the same ones chosen by God and made holy through the blood of Christ. Or let's take another survey of Romans 1:7 and see how he starts his epistle to them. In Romans 1:7, Paul says, "To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints." The same ones that were beloved by God in Rome were called as saints. He's not talking about every person in Rome. He's talking about the people in Rome who are called as saints. They're the beloved of God. Do you see that? Are you guys following this? (laughs) Okay, let's look at another. Um, Romans 8.35 where Paul says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? (coughs) Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Well, who is the us in verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? All you have to do is go back in your Bible and read. He tells you. Verse 28. It's those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 29. It's those that were foreknown. Verse 29. Those who are predestined to be conformed to Christ's image. Verse 30. Those that he called. Verse 30. Those that he justified. Verse 30. Those that he's going to glorify. Verse 31. Those whom God is for. Verse 32. Those that he's going to give everything freely to. In addition to Christ. Verse 33. They are God's elect. It's very simple when you just read the context. Who he's talking about. And he's saying these are the ones. Who shall separate us. The ones that are called. Foreknown. Predestined. Justified. Glorified. God's elect. That group. The true Israel. Who's going to separate those people from the love of Christ. So the love of Christ is it's like laser focused on this group that Paul has in mind, his church. Okay, let's go to Second Thessalonians. We'll look at three more passages that'll help us understand this love. Second Thessalonians 1 verse 4. No, I'm sorry, First Thessalonians 1 4. That's what it is. That's it. Okay. First Thessalonians 1.4. Knowing brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Now notice what he's saying. First of all, he calls them brethren. He said these brethren are beloved by God. And then he says these brethren beloved by God were chosen by God. And they might say, well, how do we know that God chose us? Well, verse 5, when the gospel came to them, it didn't come in word only. It came in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. In other words, the gospel transformed them. So the person that's beloved by God in verse 4 is the person who's been transformed by the gospel in verse 5. And that happened because God chose them, according to verse 4. Let's look at another one, 2 Thessalonians 2.13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation, through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this that he called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there again, almost the same expression. They're beloved by God, they're chosen from the beginning for salvation, and they're called brethren. And we ought to always give thanks, because God is the one who chose us for salvation through sanctification and faith in the truth. So this love, being beloved by God, has, it's connected to being a brother, being chosen by God, and being called by God to obey the gospel. Let's look at one more, and that's the book of Jude. Let's see how Jude starts his letter. Chapter 1, well there's only one chapter, but verse 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Three expressions, the called, beloved, and kept. So this, do you see that the love that Paul talks about and the love that James talks about here is not a general love for every person in the world, it's a love for the believer. It's a love for the church. It's a love for God's elect, for this Israel that he's forming. Okay, so with that as a background... What do we do with all that? I remember last time I preached on Romans 9, uh, Jerome told me, I'm a vessel of mercy. You know, he was excited about, yes, I'm a vessel of mercy. Well, all of us should go away today saying, I'm beloved. I'm beloved. Not in just a general way, but in a special saving covenant way. I'm beloved of God. I. I'm beloved in God, I'm called, I'm kept for Jesus Christ, I'm chosen for salvation through sanctification and faith in the truth. This this is what the Bible says. So we ought to go away basking in that and enjoying that and let that love fill you up to where you're overflowing with, I'm loved of God, I'm loved of God. In fact, the Bible says that he set his love on us from before the foundation of the world, God loved me, He set His love on me, and let that transform your life, you know the Bible says in one John 4.19, we love because He first loved us, okay, so if I'm going to love God back, I need to know that He first loved me, and I need to let that love of God for me just fill me up, so I can love Him fully back, Alright, let's look at the third expression, sons of the living God. There they should be called sons of the living God. We are sons of God in two ways in the scripture. Because we've been adopted and because we've been regenerated. And let's talk about the difference between those two things. Adoption means... For someone to take the initiative to bring somebody else who has no right to be in his family. And bring them into the family as their own child. Granting them all the rights and privileges of a natural born son. So it's a legal thing. You give them a legal right to your inheritance. And the Bible many times talks about the fact that God has adopted us into his family. For example, Ephesians 1 at the end of verse 4 and verse 5. It says, In Him He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace. So God has done this. And He did it in love. He adopted us into His family. Or if you go back to Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. It says, but when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. So I notice a progression here. First, God adopts us. Then he sends the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, and then he makes us aware that we are heirs, that he's given us an inheritance. Adoption, uh, the sending of the Spirit, and this discovery of being an heir. So that's adoption. What about regeneration? If we're the sons of the living God, we're not just sons because we've been adopted legally, but because. Through the power of the Holy Spirit we have been born. It's not just a legal reality, it's a living reality. We haven't just been legally brought into the family, we've been born. We've been born by the Spirit into the family. And that's what John is talking about when he says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right or the power to become the children of God. Even to those who believe on his name. Who were born... Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So how does this new birth happen? Well, he says three things that it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen by blood, the will of man, or the will of the flesh. It happens by God. God does the birth. God makes the birth happen. It's a regeneration, imparting of new life. That's what Paul meant back in Ephesians 2.5. By his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. That's regeneration. Dead, now living. Death to life. God makes the difference in that whole thing. And that's why John says in 1 John 3.1, Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the sons of God. We used to sing a chorus when I was first saved. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. That we should be called the sons of God. That we should be called the sons of God. But John is saying marvel that you are a son of God. Because that's God's great love breaking into making you one of his sons. Not just an ordinary general love, it's this great love. Behold what manner of love, what great love of God to make you His child, and make you part of the true Israel. So to sum up, I would say, folks when you're feeling down, or just not with it, or kind of apathetic in your spiritual life, preach the Bible to yourself. Tell yourself, I am one of God's people, and He's my God. Tell yourself, I am beloved. Tell yourself, I am a son of the living God. If you believe that, preach it till you believe it, and if you believe it, it's going to change your outlook. There there is nothing greater than to know that you're the son of the living God. Praise God. So let, let these truths flood your soul till you overflow in joy and love and worship and security in your relationship with God through Christ. That's Paul's first point verse 25 and 26. Now, 27 through 29. How does God form this true Israel? Not only by the calling of the gentiles, but the, by the preserving of a Jewish remnant. And that's what he gets out here. Notice, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have rem- resembled Gomorrah. Now Paul is quoting Isaiah 10:22 to 23, and Isaiah 1 verse 9. And the point that Paul is making by quoting those verses is that God saved a remnant of the Jewish people. When the Assyrians came in, God could have allowed them to wipe out and destroy every last one of the Jews. But God didn't allow that. He saved a remnant. He left a posterity. Yeah, the, the Assyrians wiped out thousands and thousands of Jews and they took the rest captive. But God brought some of them back into the land and restored them to his favor again. There was a remnant left. And Paul sees a direct uh, a principle and a parallel there. God allowed the Jews to be partially destroyed because of their idolatry, because they had forsaken the Lord and God in His judgment and wrath, brought judgment, but He remembered mercy. And He He brought His mercy to bear on a remnant of those Israelites. Do you remember He says in verse uh, 28, I think, 29, unless the Lord had left us a posterity, the Jews would have become like Sodom and resembled Gomorrah. Well, how did Sodom and Gomorrah end up? In fiery judgment, they were, they were consumed. In fire from heaven, weren't they? There was nothing left. And that's Paul's point. Unless God had done this thing, all of Israel would have been destroyed. Because all of Israel just deserved to be destroyed. But God remembers his mercy and he exercises his mercy even in judgment to leave a remnant to save a remnant. So now let's think about the relevance. There's a I believe a direct parallel between what God did to Israel during the Assyrian invasion and what God is doing today. Back then the Israelites committed gross idolatry. They forsook the true and living God for gods of their own making. And so God acted in judgment And he ordained that the Assyrians would come in and they would do this work of judgment on them. But he remembered mercy. Today, the whole world, basically, has forsaken the true and living God and have gone after other gods. Like Romans 1 says, they have exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for images in the form of Four-footed beasts and animals and birds and crawling creatures. In other words, we have forsaken the true creator, the true God, for these images of gods. The creature. We've done exactly the same thing that Israel did. And God is going to bring judgment upon this world one day. The day of judgment is hastening. It will come. There's no stopping it. But in wrath, God still remembers mercy. And God is going to save a remnant out of this world. Just like he saved a remnant of the Jews. He's going to keep a posterity that will pass into his favor, into his eternal kingdom. In 2 Thessalonians um, chapter 1, Paul describes what's going to happen when Jesus Christ returns. <coughs> 2 Thessalonians 1.7 he says... When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So just as God brought this judgment upon Israel in the past through the Assyrians, God's going to bring judgment upon this world himself, the final time. He's going to As it says here, deal out retribution, or I believe the King James says, take vengeance. Deal out retribution or take vengeance upon those who, one, don't know God, and two, those who do do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So does that mean that every person in the world is doomed? Well, they deserve it. All of us do deserve it. But no, God has formed some into vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Romans 9, 23. God is saving a remnant. He's bestowing mercy upon a remnant. And he does this to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. So brothers and sisters, this last one here, 27 to 29. And think of it. God is saying the whole world would have slid right into hell, every last one of us, if God didn't save a remnant, if God didn't preserve a posterity. <coughs> now we, we kind of, in the back of our heads, really think we deserve better than that because that's not fair, that's not right, now, we're thinking wrong. What we do deserve is judgment for sin, but God has saved a remnant, and so let that cause you just to fall on your face like the, people, the elders in the book of Revelation and they cry out holy 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 is the Lord God Almighty and let it fill you with gratitude and joy and pour out your love to your Creator who has saved you. Are you saved? Are you saved? Are you a brother or a sister in Christ? If that's true the Bible says you are God's people, you are beloved, you're a child of the living God. You've been called by grace. And if those things are true, God is to be worshiped. God is to be celebrated. God is to be enjoyed. God is to be rejoiced in. And so the application for today is I just want us to rejoice and worship as a response to what God has told us in His Word. And I've asked Oleg to put up a special song. And we'll just allow this song to serve as a segue between the Word and the Lord's Supper. So I would encourage all of you just to sing and just to worship as you prepare your hearts to rejoice in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for you on the cross. So let's do that.